What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, uh, tested the water now became wine, and, it did, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the, uh, then the poor wine. But you have get, kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Please keep your Bibles open. Yeah, so uh, we will be looking at the signs and we will jump straight into it. So if you have your Bibles open now, um, in John chapter 2, verse 11, uh, it says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And, mani- and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, we're starting a new series on the um, seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is the first sign that Jesus performed in his ministry. It was the turning of water into wine. Now, the word sign is uh, appropriate because although turning water into wine is a miracle worth talking about, Uh, The act that Jesus did was not the point, actually. The the miracle was pointing to a bigger truth Jesus wants to uh, draw our attention to. So uh, a few years ago, I went to uh, a place called Krikova. It's a Moldovan winery. Uh, Moldova is a small country in Eastern Europe. It's just next to Romania. And uh, one of their big exports is wine. And... uh, uh, the winery cellar was so big that uh, you needed to drive in a car to get to the different sections. That's how huge the winery cellar is. And as we went through, as we drove around the tunnels, the tour guide would point at the signs that says, okay, this is where all the Chardonnays are, this, this is where all the Merlots are, this is where all the sparkling wines are, and so on. And... Um, I was thinking to myself, surely, uh, no matter how smart you are, without the signs and the tour guide, you will definitely get lost in the tunnels. And at the end of the tour, they said, um, uh, the first man in space uh, was a Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin. He actually went to the Krikovan tunnels and he got lost. So they jokingly said uh, he found his way into space but he got lost in Krikova. (laughs) Signs are important because it helps us to uh, navigate where we are going. And in the case of the Bible, signs are important because it helps us navigate who is telling the truth. 
for example, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, one of the famous uh, signs uh, and, and miracle workers, of course, is Moses, right? Uh, the Egyptians and Israelites knew that Moses was from God because he uh, performed uh, signs that not even the greatest magicians and sorcerers of Egypt could perform. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, just to remind you, when Jesus, uh, uh, when, sorry, when Moses met God on the burning bush, uh, Exodus chapter 4, um, Moses says this to God, um, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. But the Lord said to Moses, what is it in your hand? And Moses said, a staff. He said, throw it to the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. And God said that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again he said uh, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And then he sa- God says, take it out. And it was leprous like snow. And then God says, put it back again. And then take it out again. And it was back to normal. It was restored like the rest of his flesh. And God said to him, if they will not believe you, maybe um, they will believe the latter sign. Therefore, the purpose of the sign in the Old Testament as in the New Testament is to authenticate the message and the messenger. So let's have a look through uh, our passage today. And um, I want you to um, ask this question, okay, as we go through the passage. What is it um, that Jesus said that was um, proven by turning water into wine? What is it that Jesus said that was proven by turning water into wine. That really is the, the, the question that I want you running through your head as we go through the passage uh, this afternoon. So, um, yeah, so verse 11, the first line. And uh, I entitled my uh, sermon this morning, The Wedding Guests, the Woman, and the Wine. Okay, the wedding guests, the woman, and the wine. And hopefully they, can, um, they will serve as markers for us as we go through the passage. And hopefully they will be uh, markers for you as well when you read the passage for yourself. Or when you um, plan to read it with somebody to share the gospel to someone. Uh, so the first marker then, the wedding guests. The setting of our passage, it takes place in a wedding. The bride and groom, funny enough in this case, are not relevant. We don't even know who they are. The key thing to note, however, is who was invited. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And Jesus was there and his disciples were there. I would like to highlight the reason why uh, maybe Mary and Jesus are there because they are relatives. But... um, the disciples of Jesus are there. Well, they're there because they're following Jesus. Okay? <laughs> um, we see that uh, actually um, if, if anyone has read the, through the, uh, um, uh, the Gospel of John before, in chapter 1, uh, we see um, four disciples actually following Jesus um, before the wedding. Andrew and Peter followed Jesus because uh, 
John told them that Jesus was the Lamb of God. So uh, in, in the same um, chapter 1 uh, of John, verse 29, John the Baptist uh, says this about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in verse 35, John again says the same thing. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. Okay, so I guess that's, that's the context as to why the disciples of Jesus were with him. And in verse 43, another person joined them. Um, Jesus saw Philip, and he called Philip to follow him. And then another one followed him in verse 45. Philip shared the good news to Nathaniel, who also followed Jesus and believed in him. So we see four disciples of Jesus believing in him. And yet, the chapter 2, verse 11 that we just read, we are told that when the disciples witnessed the sign, uh, they were singled out as the ones who saw the glory of Jesus, and they believed in him again. Okay? Uh, the, the, the point that I, I want to make is that um, the good news of Jesus is um, not only for those who don't know him, uh, perhaps you think you already know Jesus, okay? But um, these passages are, are still for you. They, they are not designed not only for people who don't know Jesus, but also for people who know Jesus. Believing Jesus is not a one-off event that happens in your life. It, believing Jesus means following him and, and, and walking with him and witnessing the work of Jesus as he reveals his glory to you when you read about him and you, when you pray to him. Um, now, if you think about it, uh, Jesus spent, uh, before Jesus died and resurrected, Jesus spent three years, right? He spent three years with his disciples before he went to heaven. Also, the apostle Paul he spent three years meditating in the desert of um, Arabia after his conversion, before he started his evangelistic journey. And the point is this. If, if you want to um, be able to reveal the glory of Jesus, if you want to be able to reveal the glory of Jesus, you first need to spend time with him. The way you spend time with Jesus is much like the same way we're doing now, right? We are uh, listening to his word and taking our time and seeing what's going on and, and praying and allowing the Lord to leap out of the pages of scripture so he can grip you with his glory. And that's my prayer for you this morning, that as we go through this text, that the Lord will leap out. And he will become real to you. Following um, Jesus is much like um, driving around in Jesus' very own um, winery cellar. Um, as you stop at each section of the winery, Jesus gives you 
perhaps one of um, his bottles or you know he pours you a drink from one of the barrels and you wash the wine in your mouth and taste that indeed the Lord is good And at this wedding, um, Jesus was about to reveal his glory, not only to his disciples, but also to his mother, which is our second marker, the woman, on verse 3 to 5. Now listen to um, the dialogue of Jesus and Mary in, in, in verse 3. When the wine, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Firstly, Mary tells Jesus that there is a problem. They have no wine. We will get to what um, wine means in a moment, but for now I want us to focus on the woman. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, um, I'm sure if you have heard this passage preached before, um, the preacher will be quick to tell you that Jesus is not being rude. <laughs> because if you say to, in, in today's context, woman, you know, <laughs> woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> That is rude. But, um, you know, uh, he's not being rude, okay? Um, He might as well would have said, oh, dear or lady, what does this have to do with me? Uh, Of course, um, he's not being rude, but I think God is um, clever in a way to word it in a way that, you know, makes you a bit jump, right? Um, Because if you're a modern reader... It does make you a bit, oh, that's a bit, that's, that's, that's quite something. And it's worth um, pausing and thinking about what Jesus is saying. And the first thing to note is that our focus should not be the first sentence of Jesus, but the second. Because what does Jesus say on the second sentence? Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is not being rude to his mother, of course. But Jesus is actually orienting Mary to the bigger picture. If I may, it could be that the conversation went like this. Um, Jesus, my son, this is really bad. They run out of wine. And it will be so embarrassing. And Jesus tells Mary, what does... What does that have to do with me? That's a problem. But can I just remind you why I have come? So Mary presents a problem. But Jesus tries to sway Mary to look at a different problem. Throughout the book of John, we um, see Jesus talk about the hour um, quite a bit, actually. At at least uh, three times. Uh, John mentions in the gospel that the hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, my time has not yet come, Jesus says in verse 6. In 
Um, verse 30 of chapter 7 again, John explains, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8 on verse 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And in chapter 12, Jesus says this about what this hour is about. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the ones who serve me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So the hour that Jesus refers to here is the time where Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sins. It is the hour he sheds his blood for us. My hour has not yet come means it's not yet the time for me to solve the problem of the world. They will be solved at that hour when I shed my blood on the cross and to prove to you that moment will come, I will perform a sign so that you can see a glimpse of my glory and believe in my words. Therefore, when Mary says, do what he says, Mary is agreeing with Jesus, but she probably did not know (laughs) She probably did not know at that time the extent of what Jesus was saying, but I'm sure she got it when Jesus appeared to her after his resurrection. Um, Now let's go to um, the third marker, which is uh, the wine. Mary tells Jesus they run out of wine. Well, um, I think it's fair to say that wine in every culture is no different in Jewish culture. It is a symbol of joy and celebration, right? Um, uh, Usually when there is a party, we have alcoholic beverages. It's a symbol of joy and and celebration. That's that's why we serve wine at weddings. And Mary, she was pointing to a physical problem. They ran out of wine, they run out of joy and things are about to go sour in this party if you don't do something, Jesus. But Jesus wants Mary to understand a greater need. And if we look at verse 6, it's interesting what John says. Notice what Jesus used to produce this wine. It says, verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. John did not have to mention what the stone water jars are for, but he does. They are for purification. In verse 4, Jesus alludes to the hour where he sheds his blood, as in my, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. 
And then we see here on verse 6, talks about the same thing, about the purification that happens in the Old Testament. So Jesus uses empty water jars used for cleansing and purification to create wine that brings people joy. Jesus turns water that is in purification jars into wine that brings joy. So the sign points to what Jesus does on the cross. Often we have a problem. And it's usually a physical problem. In this case, Mary thinks the biggest problem this wedding has is running out of wine. And maybe in your life, you think the biggest problem you have, I don't know, you name it. Maybe your spouse, your marriage, your finances, children, your health, your job, or lack of those things. It's a physical problem. Oh Jesus, if only you would um, intervene and cause me to win the lottery. I wonder how many people have said that before. Oh Jesus, if only you would intervene and cause um, this stubborn child to behave himself. We cry out to God for physical problems. But um, I want you to, to pause for a moment and listen to Jesus. Jesus in this passage is telling people, your biggest problem is not what you think it is. Your biggest problem is not the lack of what you are seeking. You, your lack is a relationship with your creator. The source of abundant, fragrant, thirst-quenching, heartwarming, everlasting joy. If wine is a symbol of joy, Jesus is saying, I can multiply joy in great quantities and of the best quality. Just look at what John says in terms of how much wine and how good this wine is. In in verse 6, there is at least six jars that can carry about 20 20 gallons, right? So six times 20, that's 120, at least. That's around about 960 pints of wine. Now, I don't know how much your fridge can hold, but uh, yeah, I've got a big family of six. I don't think we can go through our 960 pints of wine. And in verse 10, the master of the feast says, you have kept the best wine for last. So just to help you understand how difficult it is to make good wine in this level of quantity. Here is um, what I learned in Krikova when I went there. Um, Aging a sparkling wine usually takes about five years. 
The longer the aging process takes, the better the taste. The sparkling wine is filtered twice in order to purify it, but the process is very complex. And how they do it is every two days, each bottle has to be rotated 45 degrees. And during the rotation, the angle of the bottle is also changed, so the sediments and impurities flow to the margins. Only after that, you see a clear, tasty, sparkling wine. And this maneuver of rotating the bottle is done manually every two days for five years by five women. Each day they rotate as many as 35,000 bottles. It takes a long time to create wine at that quality in that quantity. But the wine that Jesus offers, the joy that he offers is better than that. As the master of the feast says, they save the best for last. It's the best wine he has ever tasted. Well, because he's, he's the best and the source of all things that is good. His wine is better than aged wine or the most expensive wine you've ever seen in the supermarket shelf. Um, The wisest and wealthiest man um, in the Bible puts it this way, and I paraphrase heavily. uh, This world is vanity if this world is all there is. I have tried everything from gardening to making money to building empires to lustful desires, but nothing on this earth can fill the void God purposely left in my heart. And he says, enjoy life's blessing, but consider them temporary. The true enjoyment in life is not found in the things of this world. The true joy in life is found in our creator. He is the source of our joy, and he's inviting people to have a glimpse of his glory. Well, the joy you think you have, he can multiply. The joy you think you lack, he can fill in abundance. The joy you think is not good enough, he can turn to be fulfilling. Don't seek your joy from the things of this world. Believe and follow Jesus because he is the source and giver of joy. Yeah, and again, maybe like Mary, you think your greatest problem is a physical problem. But Jesus wants to point you to the hour he died on the cross. Because your greatest problem is sin. The sin of perhaps self-entitlement and unbiblical expectations from God. The sin of selfishness and the desire to pursue pleasure or position. The sin of comfort and ease of living. 
and with this sign. Jesus is telling you that he can wash away the deep sins in your heart and turn your sorrows into joy. The sin that makes your life bitter, he takes away, and like this wedding, he replaces it with sweet wine. The sin that makes your life feel lonely and empty, he fills abundantly with meaning and purpose. Church, do you see how much Jesus has to offer? Now, all of us have our own struggles, whatever that might be. Not for a moment would I want to play that down. But Jesus wants us all to look at the cross. Sin being the deeper cause of all our sorrows. And his death being the solution that turns all our sorrows into joy. Now, we will conclude in, in, in another portion of John, just before Jesus leaves his disciples to go to the cross, he tells them this. John chapter 16, um, from verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now Jesus here was talking to his disciples and preparing them for that sorrowful moment they witnessed him taken away and crucified. And Jesus tells them not to worry. Your grieving will turn into joy because they will see him again. In a way we can relate. Living in this world, um, even for a Christian, is not always joyful. And waiting for Jesus to fulfill all his promises can feel like a long time. But life is very short. 200 years from now, everyone in this room, including the youngest one, will probably be dead. And to those who follow Jesus until the end, we will be enjoying a banquet like this wedding where there is abundance of good wine and only for a little while longer. But that wait will be totally worth it 
your life will probably what? You'll reach what? 100, 120 maybe if you're to a different degree, 150. But that's nothing compared to eternity. Jesus can turn any of your sorrows into joy. The most abundant and most fulfilling joy is found in Jesus. And today I hope you see that Jesus offers something good. As the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Choose to follow him and he will satisfy you. Let's pray. Father, thank you again um, for this uh, great reminder of what Jesus offers. He offers us joy and abundance of the best quality and greatest quantities. Help us, Lord, to um, look at the cross once more and um, lay out our sin before him so he can cleanse us as white as snow. Amen.